Hi everyone, today I have Leo Miles with me from Macmillan Cancer. Hi Leo. Hi. We are going to be talking about cancer and insurance, how insurance is perceived um, from people on the outside, and I'll be chatting through some case studies where we've been able to help people get insurance. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. So, Leo, how are you doing? How's lockdown treating you? How's the weekend? Oh, well, I'm generally good today because the sun is shining. I've got my lemon dress on. I'm very happy. And actually, I've just had a week's uh, leave, so which is the first week's leave since January, I think. So very nice. had some lovely time to catch up with the family, been to the seaside twice, seen my mum and dad since the first time in oh. February because um, obviously they've been shielding because they're quite bored and a bit yeah. poorly. So that was really lovely. And um, my little boy was so excited to see them. It's like, yay, grandma and grandpa. So... I think, yeah, on, in general, pretty good. Life is pretty good. And uh, we've tried to get out a bit more now, so that's great. Fantastic. We've, we took the step yesterday to um, take the kids out. Our nearest kind of like zoo area near to us is Flamingoland and we have annual passes. Ah. And, um, I'm also going to do a quick cut to say, love your lemon dress. So we took them, we usually go quite regularly and we went and, and it was just nice, you know, because it was a kind of thing of they've obviously been very careful. They know that we've all been in lockdown, that we're having to... You know, my, my now six-year-old has been, every time he has a coffee, just looks at me and goes, don't worry, mummy, it's not coronavirus. And you just think, oh, bless them, you know, sorry, what yeah, they're taking yeah. in and what they're noticing. And it was just nice to take them somewhere. And we stayed away from all the rides because we kind of looked at the ride area and could see that distancing wasn't necessarily being mm. done. And we went around all the kiddies area, which again, you know, obviously the kids weren't necessarily distancing, but the adults were, you know, the, we weren't all close to each other in all the zoo area. And, um, and it was just so nice to sort of get them back out and sort of be like, it's okay, we can go out, it's safe, it's fine, we've been here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really, really lovely this weekend. And obviously as well, just nice to have a really nice warm day because I just, I feel like it's been a little bit yeah. Makes you feel a little bit, you've got a little bit of normality back and it's been nice for us. We've just been able to see a few of our friends, like school friends yeah. and things like that. And we're really lucky where we live because we live in Surrey. So we're surrounded by loads of countryside and a million national trust places. And um, my we saw my best friend um, and uh, his, her little girls, really good friends with my boy. And they played in a tree house. And, you know, it's a bit the same. The kids, they know what they need to do. Yeah. They can't help creeping kind of a bit closer together. But then, you know, Claire and I had a chat two meters apart going yeah. across a, a woodland so but, you know it's good isn't it? it it is starting to feel better it is it's starting to not feel as, as scary now I mean I'd, mm. I'd say that I, you know we're still very much being very very cautious mm. and you know we've got masks and everything but um yeah yeah it's feeling a little bit a little bit better <sighs> yeah definitely definitely so last time I had Roger Edwards on and we had our truth or lie feature so it's, it's your turn to guess who you think was telling the truth and who was telling the lie. Um, so Roger said that he has taken up cycling again during lockdown, that he'd got his bike back from his son and that he was really enjoying going out cycling again. And mine was that I have read um, a book every week since March. So who do you think is telling the truth? Mm, it's a really tricky one. Um, but I think I'm going to go with Roger on the basis that I know that you have got three children and you're a super busy mum. And frankly, if you've read a book a week, I am so insanely jealous and I want to know how you did it. And I can't believe what you did because I've only got one and I couldn't manage it at all. So I'm going to go with Roger. Yeah, absolutely. Roger is, <laughs> is definitely the one that's took up cycling again. Um, yeah, no, I, I have. 
I have been involved in setting up a virtual book club, which is brilliant because it's like it's it's forcing. I feel like because now I'm in the group, I feel like I must read the book each month. Um, so that's good. And we've just done um, month two, which is um, which is sorry, going to do the the gin meetup night this weekend and have a talk about the book. Um, but yeah, there's absolutely no way that I've been able to read a book every every week. It's yeah. I just don't have time to think, you know. No, I, I, I was just like, I know you're superwoman anyway, and I don't <laughs> want to feel any worse than I already do about just having one and having to homeschool and still not managing to cope with that in my job. So, um, yes, anyway, that's, I find that tremendously reassuring, actually, now. Yes. So thank you for that. <laughs> and great to hear that we're just cycling. That's also extremely positive. It is. It is. <laughs> So, Leo, you work for Macmillan Cancer and have been involved in many areas of sort of like the finance world and insurance for, for, for many years. Can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Yeah, so um, I've been at, at Macmillan, it's Macmillan Cancer Support, um, that's our full title. Um, so I've been at Macmillan for about nine years now, coming up, it'll be nine years in September. Um, so before that, I, I was actually, well, I was a mortgage advisor to start with, that was my first entry into the financial services world. Um, and from there, I went to the FSA to become a regulator. So I did some supervision. I supervised a major retail group, actually. Um, and then I decided that I wanted to be more open about social justice and all those exciting things. So I went and worked for a charity on, um, in financial education. And then um, the job at Macmillan came up and actually quite a few people spotted it and said, that's, that's your job. That's, you need to do that job. Um, so my role was actually set up alongside um, a new service that we'd established, which is called Financial Guidance Service. So I know lots of people know about the Macmillan nurses, our amazing nurses, all our um, medical professionals, a whole range of medical professionals. Um, but I think people know less, a bit less about our other services. And one of the primary areas that we look after people in is, is financial support, because it's such a huge concern for people after they have a cancer diagnosis. Yeah. Um, so we have a welfare rights team, which is obviously helping people to access benefits. We also have a money and work team, so helping people at work. Um, and then the financial guidance service was set up in a response to an identified need that people were looking for help with financial products and services. So things like um, people are really often looking for help with their mortgage, they just want maybe um, a deferral just to help them to kind of get get things sorted out you know while they're coping with starting their treatment pathway and things like that so that's what our financial guidance service does um, they're specialists many of them um, have been advisors as well so they are amazing so skilled I'm always in awe of them um, and what my role actually does is um, the financial guidance service come to me and they'll say oh we've seen these issues so we've got some specific cases some case studies but actually this looks to us like it might be something even bigger so my job and my team take those bigger issues and say, OK, well, how can we start sorting those out maybe a bit earlier on so that we're not seeing people who've experienced that issue and we have to kind of help them to kind of work through that. So what I would be doing is working with government, with the FCA, with industry as well to kind of look at some of those big picture problems and say, OK, let's think about what we can do to resolve those. What do we need to help you understand about people with cancer? If there's issues that we can't solve in one place, do we look at somewhere else? So I'm part of our um, policy campaigns and influencing area at Macmillan. So that's also where our campaigners sit. So you might have seen some of our big Forgotten Sea um, campaigns. That's I work with the campaigns team as well. So it's a really lovely job. It's really exciting. I get to meet loads and loads of people. And obviously more than anything else, I get to advocate for people with cancer and help people to understand more about their needs. So love it. And um, also, very fortunately, in that role, 
Um, I have the privilege of working on um, the Access to Insurance Working Group, which is um, has been set up by the uh, Cabinet Office's it's such a difficult thing to say, in, um, disability champion for the insurance sector. So I actually chair the charity and consumer reference group, which um, helps to um, uh, kind of inform some of the work of the working group and to kind of test and challenge about what's going to be best for consumers in that. Um, so that's kind of my current role. Um, I think some of the challenges that we see, particularly in insurance and financial guidance services, do quite a lot of work on is they will see a lot of issues where people are having claims declined or challenged. They will actually support people with those and do advocacy work. But obviously they also see quite a lot of people coming to them saying, you know, I haven't been able to get insurance and, you know, I don't really understand why that is. So a whole range of different things that we deal with. Also, one of the big things that stands out for me with that is that you are coming at this from such a, a kind of like a holistic mindset of what's going on. You've been an advisor, you've been a regulator, you know, a consumer cancer champion, you know, and you are involved in so many different things as well within the financial services that you can really, you can see so many different aspects of it and you can understand and have that really unique perspective of pretty much every, almost every area, you know, that is going to need to be um working together to be able to yeah. really make those good consumer outcomes yeah I mean, you know following on from what you were just saying there as well i mean a big thing i think is that the main thing to to say sorry, straight away is that what do people who've had cancer or currently have cancer what do they typically sort of like think of the insurance world so so it's a really interesting question and um, so one thing I should say as well is that I myself have a serious health condition so I have type 2 bipolar so um, first of all you, sound, you made me sound much more expert than I think I actually am. Um, self-doubt. Self-doubt, I know I should have self-doubt but I, I, it's like oh gosh really. Um, really so, what you're saying, it was incredible everything you've done, I was just, I'm in awe, I was just like wow, you've like literally been everywhere. <laughs> well you know I get around. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, it's, it, it's an interesting thing because I obviously my own experience with insurance um, having had a type, I was diagnosed with type 2 bipolar. So having it was very interesting as I, I was diagnosed after I had my son. And so I'd started my job at Macmillan and then went on maternity leave. And effectively, I went through a similar process where when I was diagnosed, I'd gone from understanding the insurance world and being someone who is included and then suddenly overnight I went to that place where I was totally excluded. I didn't understand what my condition meant in terms of how an insurer saw it. So there is an element of this where I will bring my personal experiences to it. But, of course. You know, which I think is important. But Absolutely. obviously a few things to say are, um, firstly, I don't claim to be an expert in cancer. What I talk about is what people have told me so about their own personal experiences and their own personal views. And obviously, I think you're going, to, you're going to hear me like a broken record. The absolute key to this is about individualised individualization and personalisation. These are people who have had a cancer diagnosis or have had cancer, and they're people first and foremost. So, unfortunately, I think you know we all accept that there's quite low trust in the insurance industry, and there's lots of reasons for that. And possibly protection suffers from some of the practices in general insurance. So people will have a perception of insurance across all the different lines and classes. Um, so lots of that will be shaped by their experiences beforehand. So if they feel that they didn't, they had a claim decline, say for motor insurance or for household insurance, they might come to that 
you know, and, and not only have that negative perception, but then they will encounter an industry that really is is almost is trying to exclude them because they're high risk, or at least they're perceived as high risk. So I think, you know, trust is low. Um, and I think, you know, perceptions are very much that, um, you know, there is that, that they are regarded as high risk and that an insurer will go first to decline rather than to accept. Um, We've got, unfortunately, a stat where one in four people feel that they are discriminated against by financial services. So they feel that they're going to pay more for products or they are going to be declined. Yeah. And again, that's that's that thing of previous experiences. Um, but equally, someone who has a good experience will be really delighted, will be you know so happy and it's transformational. So what you tend to hear about is all the negative experiences. Um, but when a claim pays, it has such a kind of transformational effect on someone's life. Because if you imagine you going from a position where you are really, really worried about finances after a cancer diagnosis, and then you, your critical illness insurance pays out as it was intended to, yeah. and you hear about that, or you hear about that experience from someone else, then you are going to have a very positive view of it. So I think it's not a case of there is one single view. It's how people come into it, how they are treated immediately after their cancer diagnosis when they're already feeling quite vulnerable, because I think that's another component of it. You, Even if you're declined, if it's done in the right way and you're supported through that process, that's going to give you a totally different outcome. But you know, insurers need to be aware that what they're dealing with is a perception that people are discriminated against, a perception that they might have low trust. And you know, I've even heard people say things like, um, you know, I brace myself before I call the insurer because I know this is going to be so difficult and it's going to be difficult for lots of reasons. And I think that's quite a sad thing. And you know, people will go to an existing insurer where they've had you know, another product, again, particularly on the multi-lines, and then they'll be like, well, okay, I've got one product with them, why have they declined me for that one? Yeah. So, you know, it's really complicated for people coming to an industry that they've experienced in different ways and previously as an included person. Okay. Quite challenging. I was going to say, I mean, it's straight away, I mean, it just, you know, it, it feels terrible thinking that, you know, one in four people think, you know, they've had cancer, will think that they are going to be treated. I don't even think just sort of like differently in a sense you know just that they, they have that thing you know where you're saying you know, like they're wanting to brace themselves I mean it's just it's not a nice feeling I mean we obviously people come to us specifically because they have had a medical condition a lot of most of our clients are in that situation and I will be honest you know there are times where you know the majority of the time if people have had cancer it, it doesn't always mean that there's going to be an exclusion or a price increase but there are certain times and you know and I, obviously I'm, I'm always trying to sort of be as open and honest as possible with these things there are times when insurers because of medical data that they look at years with medical data um, and that's how they make their decisions so not just with cancer but with a number of conditions mm -hmm. if it means that that person is more likely to maybe have cancer again or another condition which um, means that they are potentially likely to die at an at a unexpected age in a sense then you know in, in the way that insurance is set up and in the way that risk is set up you know the insurers have that kind of I don't want to say right to sort of like offer insurance to a differently or a different premium or anything, but I think it's it's important to say that there are times as well where somebody who's had cancer very recently is possibly still within quite a, what would be classed as quite a high risk time of something recurring. But I think it's not necessarily clear when someone has declined or when there's an increase of premium or an, or an exclusion or something like that, exactly why 
that is happening. So obviously the insurer will have lots of data as to why they're doing something. Um, and obviously I don't have access to that data and I can't say whether or not I'm not medically trained. So you know, I have no idea if it's right or wrong or whatever, but there'll be some kind of a basis why, why they've done that. And, um, and I, I just think sometimes that, you know, it, it's, if some, if there was kind of a very clear explanation put down, then that, that would make it not okay, but maybe people would maybe understand a little bit better why insurers have made the decisions that they've made, maybe a bit more transparency in that kind of a process. Yeah, I mean, I think you're 100% right. Um, sorry, there's a lot of things there. Maybe, maybe I'm not, I'm not going to say you're 100% right on everything. No, sorry, you are. Um, I, I might just give a slightly alternative view. I mean, I think this, the, the, going back to the kind of people feeling discriminated against, it's absolutely that. I think, you know, people expect to pay more because they understand that they pose a high risk and that that is completely reasonable. Now, it is reasonable for insurers to underwrite looking at the data that they have. But one of the challenges is the fact that it's so opaque that we don't really understand whether that data is actually fair and representative. So people, you know, people with cancer so are protected by the Equality Act. It's an automatic disability under the Equality Act. And that means that insurers must use data that is relevant to that individual and which, on which it's reasonable to rely. But and that on, on that basis, you make an objective judgment. But at the moment, we only have the insurer's word that that data is reasonable to rely on and that it is re relevant to the individual. And I think if there was an explanation, as you say, that's much more transparent about exactly what it is about that person's individual circumstances, firstly, they'd feel a lot more confident. And actually, you know, people, people don't necessarily know that they are covered by the Equality Act. And in fact, it's one of the things that Macmillan, we put in our, we have pages on the website that tell you about going to apply for insurance, what it might mean, very much so if you've been recently diagnosed or if you've recently finished treatment, that it is likely that you might be declined or postponed or the cost will increase. So, you know, we're perfectly aware of that and we make people aware of that. Yeah. Um, but I think it's, you know, what we see and the real challenge is, people who have no idea that that might just be one insurer's view and it might be one insurer's data that's being used. So there's that problem. Yeah. Um, when they are offered a quote, they're offered a deferral or whatever that decline, um, they don't know where that's, well, the, the, obviously they don't know what the data is being used, but also they don't get its value for money. So it might be that they pay an increased premium, but is that fair? Are they getting what they deserve they're going to pay so it's important you know so people have a range of choice and to understand the value of what getting and whether it really does with their situation so people are quite often left um with an impression about their their well-being and their health their state of health that's different to what they've been told by their clinician um and i think that insurers possibly don't realize quite how much impact they have on people with those discussions that they have because if someone's clinician has said to them, yep, you know, you're well recovered, I don't see any chance of there being a recurrence, um, or they're many years after diagnosis, to, and they've recovered, to have an insurer say, well, no, you're still a really high risk, um, or we don't want to cover you, you know, can actually have quite a significant impact on someone's, you know, emotional well-being, um, you know, and so that's, it's really important that we don't let people go off with the impression that that's you know that insurer's view is is the entire market's view or everybody's view of them particularly not if it's kind of different to their clinician's view absolutely i mean we obviously we are specialists so there are times you know where people come to us you know they've said they've been to multiple insurers been to multiple brokers and they've been declined 
everywhere and they come to us and we'll get them standard rates at a different insurer just because of the different access that we have and it's not that you know it's not that we're going to start any specifically you know there's no funny wordings or anything like that it's just purely understanding and having you know some brokers have limited panels and some people just, you know, they don't have the knowledge that, you know, they haven't experienced being able to arrange for people that are living with cancer. But we have a couple of like really interesting kind of examples that go with that as well. So completely appreciate with you that, you know, it's really hard as to what you can do and sort of how you can say these things to people living with cancer and potentially change whether their mind is, you know, and then how they're feeling about themselves and feeling so good about the stages that they're at. Um, so as an advisor, that's something that we've had to do on multiple occasions and it's been for a couple of different reasons. So one of them, as an example, we had somebody who had tonsil cancer and their specialist had said to them, I got your tonsils out, the cancer's out, everything's done. You are not getting cancer again. You are definitely not getting cancer again because, you know, I would literally bet my house, my car, my living, everything on you never getting cancer again which is brilliant for that person to hear. They are so confident. But then when you go to the insurance side of things, the insurer from their data and the different things that they have, will quite a bit of the time would be very case of, well, no, you actually, because you've had tonsil cancer, there's pretty much a really good chance you're going to get cancer again. So no, that's, that's not the case. And that's really hard as an advisor to be able to buffer that because you're hearing both sides. Another thing that we have quite regularly, and this isn't like a... Um, I'm not being funny towards the NHS or any kind of doctors or anything like that. I'm just obviously, again, ex talking from our experience. There's been quite a few times where people have had the incorrect cancer information recorded in their medical records. So there's times where people have come to us, you know, they've been to other people, been declined here and there and different things. And they'll come to us and they'll tell us what cancer they had, the staging and the grading and different things. And we'll say to them, right, you'll, we'll be able to get you with insurer X and it should be around about this premium, but we're going to have to go through medical information. And then I'll come back and it could be that the premiums have been doubled or tripled. And then they think they're saying to us, well, why was this? And we end up getting, obviously, chatting with the insurer, talking about the different, you know, with different permissions in regards to data protection now as well, especially. Um, and it'll end up that we'll say to the person, look, we, we can't know everything that's gone in your medical report from your GP to the insurer, unless, you know, sort of like we, we go through data protection requests and different things like that. Um, or they get copies of the medical reports, which can be really, really helpful if people can do that. Um, but we'll say to them, look, from what, you know, obviously we understand that you've had cancer and you understand it to be this staging and grading. And when we have to advise them, but we're really, really sorry, but the way that the insurer is pricing this is it, it basically is kind of meaning as if your GPs recorded it as actually um, this staging or grading, which would have been a much higher, much more um, invasive cancer. And there's been quite a lot of situations where we've done that and the person's gone back to their GP and found that the, G, the GP's records and the medical report has actually been incorrectly completed for the insurer. And, you know, they've faced all these declines. They've faced being turned away so much. And it's because that medical report wasn't being completed correctly. And so I'm, I'm sure this isn't like a standard, you know, thing that's happening to everybody. Um, but it is something that we have seen on multiple occasions. And it's, in a sense, it's, it's good with our knowledge that we're able to stand there and go, hang on a minute, there's something just isn't adding up here. You know, we need to figure out what's going on in these medical reports. Or maybe this person hasn't understood the diagnosis that they've been given which either way is very very hard 
as an advisor to know how to how to handle that because it's not sort of as if you're just an insurer issuing a decline letter in a sense you are there you invested in people and come to you with such trust it can be very very difficult um, so when it comes to things like the insurances I think you know it can be quite hard for people to understand what is potentially going to be available I think some people and um, can come and think right you know i've had cancer i won't get life insurance or i've had cancer i'm going to get life insurance with a high premium or an exclusion and then some people may come and just go well i had cancer but it was you know 10 years ago so i'm absolutely fine i should just be able to get life insurance or, or any of the other insurances you know and and there being no in a sense queries or issues or high premiums so as an example, I do have some case studies as well to go through. Um, but as an example, so somebody who's had leukemia, so say like first something like a critical illness contract. Um, so critical illness, for anybody who's listening who's not familiar, they would typically within the UK cover you for at least 50 life-changing diagnosable conditions. So that would be cancer, strokes, heart attack, and probably your main three that tend to be claimed on. There are other things like Parkinson's disease is covered. Um, there can be like traumatic head injuries, um, third degree burns. You know, there's, there's quite a few different things in there. Some of them cover multiple, sorry, multiple sclerosis as well. But it's important to know as well when you get these policies that if you have like cancer, it'd be cancer of the specified severity. So I sometimes say to people, I'm asking, I say, you know, if you have sort of a, a mild skin melanoma, that's, you know, obviously no matter what, it's cancer and it's going to be quite a shock to whoever's had it. But if you're able to go into the GP surgery and they're able to remove that, it's, it's not what an insurer would probably class as a life changing version of cancer. You know, it's, it's going to be something that is probably much more um, invasive, but there are things known as partial payouts as well for cancers that are of what would be classed in the insurer's mind as kind of a lesser severity. Um, but for say something like leukemia, you probably need to be um, clear of the cancer for about 20 years before critical illness cover may be available. And it could be possible that some insurers will never offer critical illness cover in, for somebody who has had leukemia. But then say you may get breast cancer, um, which is obviously far more common, I believe, than, than leukaemia. Um, and that is something that's, you know, depending upon the staging um, and the grading, the life insurance could be available um, with some life insurers within a matter of months. And, you know, not it's not always at silly prices. I don't want to say it's never at silly prices. You know, there's some times where the prices do get to be a little bit out of budget, but it's important at that point, that's where advice really stands out because we can help you sort of figure out where, that premium, if it's going to increase, is going to be increased the least, if that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. That seems a bit of a tongue twister saying it like that. Um, but again, as well, critical illness cover could potentially be available after a few years with some exclusions. Um, you may find if someone's had stages three or four cancer that they may not be able to get critical illness cover. What we say is on the standard market, you know, there are some specialist options that can be looked at. And again, that's not to say that they're going to be silly prices. So just think if you hear the word specialist insurance or something or specialist broker, it doesn't mean that you're getting anything with, like I said, dodgy wording or anything like that or um, say silly prices. It just means that you're going to a more unique offering because of the, the situation that you've, you've had. I mean, what's your thoughts on, on that kind of side of things in, you know, in regards to the timeframes between somebody being diagnosed with cancer and then, insurances being available or not available or the exclusions different things like that it's you know as you say it's, it's a really 
it's a hugely complicated picture isn't it I mean it's you know as you described it if you think about a customer journey through that their starting point is I've you know I'm recovered 20 years from this cancer and I you know again I've had conversations with people where they sort of say oh you know I you know I had leukemia in childhood and yet I still have to go through full medical underwriting and you know a lot of the time I think it's back to sort of the customer centric point where if you think about the times that people are taking out new insurance a lot of those times are kind of quite positive times you know maybe if you're getting married or if you're buying a new house or things like that um so you, it's kind of understandable when those are the times that people are moving on they're you know they are confident and they're recovered so it's you know it I think it's very difficult to understand why from a layman's perspective you know some after 20 years someone should still present such a high risk that they're paying a lot more however when you talk about breast cancer you know and again I'm no medical expert but it can be highly recoverable um, and people are living longer you know there are better treatments so to again further out from a cancer like that um, you would expect to see people I think paying a lot less Obviously, if it has advanced, then, you know, people are a higher risk. It, it's, but there are so many permutations. I think that's the challenge is it's very difficult for someone to understand when different insurers are taking a different view and there's massive levels of inconsistency and someone might get totally different outcomes from different places, whether that is representing, you know, a fair good value approach so it's not just about the cancer itself but it's about actually how that's judged by the industry and there is no one single answer so I think that would be my kind of riposte to that or what my I would put back is like how can you take such different views and what on what basis and maybe you can just be really transparent and or say you know it's 20 years for leukemia and that's that you know so that people coming know what to expect yeah. Um, but in terms of making a judgment, not being on the inside of the industry, it's really hard to say because, you know, we're on the outside looking in saying, well, you know, our financial guides will see people coming with leukemia, a long time recovered from leukemia and also with breast cancer. That's quite a common scenario for them. And they're sort of saying that just doesn't feel quite right to us. Why so high? Why? Why? Oh, no. Why? You know, such a long time out from diagnosis before they'll be covered. So, you know, it's it's really challenging. I think it is, you know, and as you say, from someone who's outside of the industry, it's it's got to be challenging. For someone who has had a cancer diagnosis, I, I imagine the last thing they want to do is necessarily talk about it at length with multiple yeah. insurers, multiple brokers. And I think that's a really important thing as to why sort of things known as signposting in our industry is becoming so much more important so that people just get directed to the right brokers or insurers straight away that can really step in and help. But it's, you know, for advisors in our industry, you know, it's, it's, it's very confusing for us and we're in there amongst it all and every day anyway and um, so for someone else who doesn't have that kind of knowledge it's it, it must be absolutely like you say that kind of bracing yourself I can I can actually sort of feel myself doing that for them yeah. you know I can sort yeah. of like sympathetically um think that way and um, something I just wanted to quickly point out as well it's just popped into my mind I think it's really important as well to tell any listeners that if somebody has had um the if somebody has the BRCA gene that's not something that you need to um, disclose to insurers. But it's very, very clear in the sense, the specific wording around that. So if you've had a predictive test to see if you carry the gene or an activated version of the gene, then you don't have to tell insurers about that. If you've had the diagnostic test because you are symptomatic, then that's different. Um, but it's something that's really, 
you know, it's, it's important for people to know, because again, we get people coming to us saying, oh, well, I've been found out that I've got this gene. It's going to make it really hard for me. And it's a case of, well, no, you know, it's, it's not going to make it really hard. You know, it should be, it should be okay. But obviously what would happen in probably a lot of places though, is that the insurers will ask about cancer within the immediate, um, what I call the, the blood related um, family members. So it'd be siblings and parents. So at some point the family history of cancer can come out in these insurances, but having these, you know, specific genetic tests, you know, if someone was thinking, oh, I shouldn't have the test because it'll affect my insurances, it, you know, I'm, I, I don't worry in a sense about that you know do whatever feels right for you if you do want to have that genetic test or not so um as an advisor so when i'm speaking to people and they've had cancer there's quite a lot of information so this is something that i think is useful for other advisors um, like myself and also for people who are listening who've had cancer and are just wondering what in a sense they're going to be asked and i'm, I'm not saying this is an exhaustive list but it's hopefully going to give quite a good amount of information that people could use in that kind of first initial chat. So the insurers are going to know what type of cancer um, the person's had, when it was diagnosed, um, uh, the staging and grading, or if it's the Gleason score, the PSA levels, obviously blood cancers are different. So any kind of readings or levels, excuse me, that you have, really, really helpful, um, especially for an advice to have straight away. The treatment that's been had, whether or not it was surgery, chemotherapy, radiotherapy hormone replacement therapy and the dates that those happen so you know if it started in the may when did they finish and um, it was a couple of months you know sort of like did it last longer than that when were you given the in a sense the all clear and discharge from the reviews um they're the main things really that can be really helpful in the first place for an advisor to help you i mean what i would say is that you know, there are some insurances that we have access to where, in a sense, the medical information doesn't even need to be detailed. So, you know, in a sense, having had cancer doesn't affect the eligibility for the policy. But there are some, in a sense, quirks with those insurances, which must be very, very clearly talked about with the people who are wanting them. So you don't have to always have that information to hand. But even though I have access to those insurances, I would always want to try more on the standard market first. So, you know, if you go and speak to an advisor, it's one of those things as well where, you know, you want them to do the research, you know, you want them to, to sort of like really do that bit to get you the best advice that they can. So we always say to people, you know, you're going to, you know, please just give us a few days, you know, we'll have all this information to hand. We absolutely, absolutely need to know the staging and the grading, you know, sorry, those readings, those levels of how big the, the cancer was or any of the other readings, you know, they're absolutely essential so that we can get the, an accurate representation of what that person may get when they apply for the insurances so one of the things i was wondering leo is that obviously it's something that we do very regularly at cure and all of our advisors are specifically trained by me <laughs> to do this and um you know in a sense i don't let them loose until i'm happy with the way that they're able to ask these questions <laughs> and um and so i get this information so i know their knowledge and also their approach is going to be right i would say i would say for the majority of people obviously um, what, do you have any kind of um, information in regards to, uh, uh, is there anything missing from that list that you think is like a key indicator of the way that somebody's health is after cancer? Or is there anything in particular that's, you know, really a no-go for advice? Is any kind of like terminology? And like I know sometimes I've seen things on social media saying, oh, you know, I'm a cancer survivor, or, I'm a cancer warrior. And then someone else would have come along and said, I don't like the term cancer survivor or cancer warrior, because that means that if someone hasn't, been able to survive the diagnosis 
then that means do you, are you saying that they didn't try hard enough or they weren't warrior enough so it's really hard sometimes to know what the terminology is do you have any tips gosh i mean it, I, i'm the broken record it's it's really personal it's really individual isn't it and i think that's the thing i mean i you know i know how expert you are and how hard you work and you work at kind of really trying to meet the customer where they are and I think that's the point you're absolutely right some people really don't like the time survivor warrior because like you say you know it it implies something about how they have dealt with their cancer um we try and avoid the, the term and we hear it all the time sufferer um, so we talk about people living with cancer. So if you're living with cancer or you had cancer, you know, quite simple, just, you know, really upfront. And, you know, I think going back to that point of, you know, if you, you, you just reeled off a very long detailed list and not everybody thinks of their cancer in terms of the, that medical terminology. Some people will. That's, you know, again, it's everybody's different. Um, it depends, obviously, again, how far out they are from their cancer, because, you know, um, well, knowing how I keep my medical records, they're usually somewhere in a drawer, um, you know, and, it, you know, so everybody will be at a different place. And yet some people we speak to, you know, our guides speak to, and they've got all the information they need in front of them, you know, they're ready to go. And obviously in Macmillan, what we try and do, again, on our web pages, it will tell you a little bit about the process. And so, say, you know, maybe have your most recent letter to hand. So sometimes it might be a case of working backwards. You know, what's the most recent interaction you've had and what information did you get from that? And then sort of work backwards, I guess. And then, um, you know, sometimes it might be helpful to remind someone, you know, if they maybe if they've had a Macmillan nurse what information did the Macmillan nurse give them because sometimes you know when they've had the diagnosis actually it takes a while to process and so it's when they maybe speak to their nurse and they explain it later and so something about helping people to remember the points at which they've, they've been given that information if they haven't got it immediately to hand so you know let's say it's it's very much about having that almost more about the approach to customer yeah than actually about the approach to the medical information because it's so personal and it's so individual um, you know, and people will be in different frames of mind as well. You know, it's back to what I said about, um, you know, it might be because they're buying a house or sadly it might be because they're thinking about the future and needing life insurance and how to support their family. So a lot more is about the wraparound. And I think you really got to the crux of it with that. How do people feel about their cancer? But ultimately what you are trying to achieve is to get that really detailed medical information that you need. So um, I don't think you can ever go wrong with asking someone, have they got some paperwork or something that they can refer to that's your starting point or what's their most recent medical interaction? Absolutely. One thing we do as well at Cura sometimes, um, depends upon the situation, obviously, is we'll say to people if they have those kinds of letters to hand from specialists and different things, you know, sometimes it can make things a little bit quicker um, when you're applying for these insurances because if it needs to go to the GP, obviously, especially in the current times of coronavirus and everything, we've kind of like got a weird dynamic at the moment where with some GPs, you know, they'll say, we are snowed under, we just can't do anything at the moment. And then other GPs are saying, well, we're barely seeing anybody. So actually, yeah, we can fill this form out much quicker than usual. And what we'll say to people is we have, you know, very um, secure systems and we'll say to people, if you have the facility to be able to scan that and you feel comfortable, there's no pressure at all, but it's just like if you feel comfortable sharing that letter with us, it means that we have kind of very early on proof that with their permission, we can then share with an insurer that details that information. It can sometimes speed things up a little bit. It's absolutely not essential at all, but it's the kind of thing of that if someone is prepared to be able to do that, then that can just yeah, speed things up a little bit. So, sorry, going on a little bit from that and just kind of moving to uh, the, the C words that I just mentioned there, coronavirus. Um, 
I don't think there was any way that we could have this chat and not talk about changes that have happened with coronavirus. And I think, you know, it's one of those things, you know, I've been quite vocal in our industry saying that, you know, it's, it's really important as an advisor that we're kept up to date with insurance decisions because then, you know, we are that buffer to the client so then we can help people and keep their expectations at a reasonable level as to what's going to be available or not. And also, again, asking those questions to sort of say, well, is, is this actually, what's this based on? You know, we understand that this change has been made. We're not going to, we're not asking sort of to know all, all the background kind of strategies and mechanics and whatever's going on with these decisions. But just, you know, can you just explain it to us so that we in our minds have a, a good idea as to what's going on? So what we have seen is that insurers have become particularly cautious um, for um, people who are living with diabetes, um, high blood pressure, uh, high BMIs, because in, in the very limited amount of data that we have on coronavirus at the moment, very, very little amount, and about the, the obviously the very, very unfortunate deaths, there has seemed to be a bit of a, a correlation that people with those conditions are at a higher risk of dying if they do get coronavirus. But one thing we're also seeing as well is that there seems to have been some kind of kind of blanket decisions made at times as well, which will insurers of sort of for the people who are listening who don't know the insurance world, when insurers sort of like assess somebody's risk for life insurance, what usually happens is that there's, there's a number of things that they're either accepted at what's known as normal terms or non-standard terms. And the non-standard terms would be a case of usually, in most of the circumstances, is a premium increase. Now, that premium increase is a multiple of that base premium that is initially seen if you go onto like an online search comparison site or something. And depending upon how much is increased depends upon how you know, much the insurer sees that person's health as being a risk. And what we're seeing is that instead of, you know, offering these higher percentages that insurers were doing um, before, so in a sense, the more risk they were prepared to take on, um, they reduced these percentages, which kind of, and I'm not saying it specifically does, but it kind of means that in quite a few circumstances, people with, say, cancer, um, people who are living with um, HIV, uh, you know, people that have, um, you know, I mean, we've seen an instance, you know, even with somebody who's been clear of cancer for nine years and is now declined by insurers because they're above that new maximum percentage of, you know, multiple of the premium. And it does seem as if, you know, that there's a very I say blanket approach just like that to anybody who does I mean like I was saying before in the beginning part of this you know insurers in a sense commercially have a right to say what their maximum percentage is if they don't want to go above a certain percentage of premium then in a sense that's their kind of their decision to do so it's in their right to do so commercially I want to say very carefully very carefully that commercially in a sense their right to do so but from very much a moral kind of point of view it does seem as if people who have had cancer have been kind of suddenly had this barrier put up from being able to fairly access insurances um, within a lot of insurers and I'm not saying because I know that there's going to be some underwriters listening and um, possibly some actuaries who aren't particularly pleased with me saying that um, but I'm not saying as say that I fully understand insurers decisions but obviously as an advisor and someone who works very much with people in the higher health risk kind of situations 
it's something where it's not been particularly clear. And um, I was mentioning to you before we spoke on here that we saw a decision letter from an insurer where, and I think I mentioned this in the podcast not long ago, where they basically said to somebody living with HIV um, that, you know, there's, we don't really have any data at the moment to say that people with living with HIV are at a high risk of coronavirus or, you know, dying from coronavirus. But we're kind of making the assumption that it is. So we're just going to blanketly say, no, we can't offer. Um, which to me didn't sit particularly well. And obviously it's something we're challenging and, and we're supporting that person. But I, I know you're going to have plenty of views on this, Leo. So I will, I will let you loose in a second. <laughs> um, but I, I think for me, what I've got to, what I would like to say is that, you know, in a sense that I think commercially, there's going to be people who completely sit in the commercial side of the decision-making things. And there's going to be people who completely sit in the moral side of, you know, decision-making. And I think we need to have very much a clear and transparent conversation with all the people who are kind of sat in the middle, who are coming from either side to sort of go, right, okay, we understand that insurers see this risk. We understand that people over here think that people with cancer should, rightly so, have a very fair access to insurance. How can we make this work and fairly work? I shall let you speak now. You go for it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, you know, coronavirus is absolutely ingrained into all of us at the moment. It's all we ever talk about. Um, but, you know, for people with cancer who pre prior to the pandemic really struggled to access and understand how they were being treated by the insurance industry, there are so many things here for us to be really alarmed by. Um, you know, I think from what I'm really interested to hear you describe the commercial versus moral argument in effect Catherine um because you know it's so for us what is most concerning so there was a we had a big concern at the outbreak of the pandemic which was when we were hearing that there was no medical underwriting taking place because um some insurers were deciding that it was appropriate to take pressure and in fact the ABI as well that it was to take pressure off the NHS front line um and so they weren't um, calling for medical evidence for people, which meant that actually there were a lot of people with cancer who were completely locked out of the market, yeah. um, whereas other people were able to access insurance because they didn't need medical underwriting. And there's a fundamental here, and I've talked about it before, but the people with cancer are protected by the Equality Act. Now, actually, this isn't a moral argument it's it or a commercial argument it's a legal entitlement and what that means for insurers is again that they need to make an individualized assessment using data on which it is which is relevant to that individual customer and on which it is reasonable to rely and you know it seems to me that every single day we're hearing something new about coronavirus and our understanding of it is developing so it doesn't sit right that there are blanket approaches being taken in anything to do with COVID. I mean, I think you said it yourself, Kevin, that actually we understand a little bit that some people with diabetes might be at higher risk, you know, but actually there's still evidence coming from across the world about different, you know, different impacts of COVID-19. So, you know, actually it's alarming to see a blanket decisions being taken, which, you know, yes, insurers are entitled to make commercial decisions, but there are, you know, there is a fine line about what is um legal Absolutely. and what you know what how people's legal entitlements entitlements are being um upheld um but there's you know there's also just a huge question about the future is this going to get worse yeah. 
um, you know, based on this, this is what's happening from what we know now, what's that going to look like in the future? And I think it's really interesting that um, the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries have already, you know, released some great papers looking at the consequences of COVID for the industry. And obviously, you know, we've seen the business interruption cases, we've seen all the challenges. The industry is, you know, not exactly that popular at the moment based on those things in the public consciousness. So to see already restricting access for people who are already facing challenges, and let's not forget that there were people who were in the shielding group, there were 250,000 people with cancer, maybe more within the shielding group, who were extremely vulnerable, but then there were also people in the wider group. So, you know, not even if to not even look at that differential as well is kind of an interesting factor if insurers aren't looking at those sorts of things. So. You know, it just it just feels like there is a potential breach here of the law. But what the institution faculty of actuaries were saying is, you know, we are going to move to a place where it's likely that there will be excluded groups. Now, at the moment, it's really unacceptable that people with cancer should be excluded already as a blanket group when they are not a group. You know, this will probably be about people with multiple conditions. You know, we just don't know yet. And again, the, you know, the Institute, what was interesting was that was posed as a kind of social, that's back to your moral question. What kind of society do we want to be? What do we need to do when we're really sure what's happening? So that if there are people who can't get insurance, how do we facilitate that for them? So that was a question we were asking before the pandemic. And now it's a question that's so much more pertinent, so much more scary um, because of, you know, what's happening already and what the consequences can be. So, you know, fundamentally for us, it, you know, it's about consistently, there must be a personalised assessment. You mustn't be using data that is potentially unreliable, that's new, you know, that, that, that isn't certain. And, you know, I th- it was really interesting because I was watching the news last night about, you know, very reliable source of data. Um, and they were showing this new thing about the COVID age. You can calculate someone's COVID age um, based on certain risk factors. And again, it was very blunt. Yeah. Um, you know, and the news presenter sort of said, you know, we can't give, we can't make a personalised risk assessment. So here's some guidelines. So if we can't do it, then don't, don't put a blanket assessment on, you know, be honest, be transparent about what's happening. So there, there needs to be a discussion. And, you know, really, from our perspective, it's absolutely not acceptable that people with cancer should be blanket excluded at this point in time. Absolutely. No, I, I completely agree. And I'm, I'm not going to say that sort of we... Um that we have sort of like every single solution out there. But one of the things that, um, especially because we are the specialist brokers and, you know, we know what we're doing. Um, I'm not saying that others don't know what we're doing, but, you know, it's just, <laughs> that sounds terrible. Um, <laughs> but, you know, obviously we, we understand like the medical conditions to an extent. Obviously we do have quite a lot of medical training, obviously not to the level of a, a doctor or a nurse or anything, but we, we do understand these conditions. So like during the coronavirus, when those GP reports were all getting stopped in a sense, you know, we were able with some insurers still to do GP reports at times. You know, there was times that we were able to get people that individual look at their cover um, rather than just that blanket kind of exclusion. And the thing is, that's brilliant. And I was so happy we were able to do that. But obviously that's if people come to us, if people just go generally to a broker, they wouldn't have had that experience and it would have continued that kind of, you know, I know there seems to be that thing in the media as well of people saying, you know, not necessarily specifically people with cancer, but, you know, people with lots of health conditions basically saying, hang on a minute, you know, this coronavirus has hit and it's really made us think about how much we need insurance and things like that, just because it scared us. And now we just can't even access it. And I think there's kind of that, 
I kind of see, when I see the commercial, when I say commercial agreements in my head, I kind of imagine, it sounds terrible, I imagine sort of like a middle-aged man in a suit with a briefcase in London who's just like completely expressionless in a sense. And um, <laughs> I know that's absolutely terrible, but that's what I see. But I see like devoid of emotion in a sense, because I think to make mm-hmm. some of those decisions, you know, you, you'd have to be, you wouldn't be able to do them if you had that kind of emotional and invested side of things to see where people mm-hmm. are at. And I do want to say to people that are listening, I know that these things are happening, but you know, there are many of us, um, not just advisors, many people within insurers and reinsurers who are really working extremely hard to try and either get things back the way they were, kind of towards where they were. Um, so that, you know, obviously there was, you know, not necessarily perfect access to insurance, but a lot more options than there are now. And, um, you know, so if you can, don't give up, you know, don't give up on the insurance world completely. And I know that's such a massive ask for some people, but, um, but hopefully, hopefully I can encourage some people to stick with us a little bit. But I've got some case studies to share because I think one of the big things for me as well is that people just don't really know what to expect. And, you know, when you're saying to people there's going to be a premium increase, as I would think, you know, you have no idea what it's going to look like. Um, so, or an exclusion, you know, it's just, it's a bit kind of mind boggling to think. So I've got two examples here um, to sort of like share with um, everybody. And one of them is life insurance and the other one is income protection. Okay. So for the first person, it was a 35 year old uh, non-smoking female. She'd had acute lymphoblastic leukemia and she was diagnosed at the age of 10. And she also had a relapse at the age of 12. She'd had chemotherapy, total body radiation and bone marrow transplant and her treatment when she spoke to us had ended 22 years prior to speaking to us but she still had early follow-ups um, as you say like the life events she was now married with two children and she had a mortgage so there was a couple of different things that we did in a sense so what we did was we did some decreasing life insurance which is typically when you have a capital repayment mortgage so if you have a mortgage that in a sense you're paying it off and at the end of the mortgage you own it is completely yours the house that's usually capital repayment and you would usually do a decreasing life insurance for that so for her we did a decreasing life insurance of a hundred thousand pounds to cover the mortgage over 12 years and that came to um, a premium of seven pounds and 19 pence per month I think an important thing to demonstrate there to people is that that includes a premium increase. So when we say a premium increase, it doesn't mean that you're suddenly going to be paying, you know, if someone's paying £5, you're going to be paying £50 a month. This is literally, you know, £7.19 per month. We also did a bit of family protection for her. So we did what's known as level life insurance of £100,000 to the age of 70, which is when she felt obviously her family would... um, would be fine. She'd be retired by that point, and um, it was the level life insurance means it'll always be a hundred thousand pound. So it'll be a hundred thousand pound as well when she's age seventy, if she hasn't obviously passed and claimed there'd been a claim on it. And that was thirteen pounds and ninety-two pence per month. Um, so there you can see she's got thirty-five years worth of cover for thirteen pounds and ninety-two pence per month. Again, that has a premium increase. So I just want to give that as an example to people, just to, again to say it, it's not going to necessarily be silly, silly pricing. And what was really good for this lady is that she actually did have a recurrence of cancer during the application process. But with the insurer that we had um, placed the policy with, the application with, um, they specifically state that they don't need information. They don't need to be updated. Once the application's with them, they don't have to be updated with new medical information. Um, so it was ignored that she'd actually had a recurrence of the cancer. So that was really, really positive, especially in this situation. 
And um, what a lot of people may see when they go for the insurance is that there is that mix. So I say, you know, it's often that it's a percentage. So it could be that the premiums are multiplied by two or, you know, or three um, or a few different options. There's sometimes it gets a little bit crazy as well. Sometimes these percentages and it's a little bit, um, you have to sometimes sit back, even as someone who does it quite often, you have to sit back and try and figure it out. Um, but some people may have see what's known as a per mil loading. And for the majority of people, a per mil loading is going to see that's when you're going to see the big prices in the premiums because what essentially happens there is that the insurer increases the premium for every thousand pounds worth of cover taken out so as an example very very kind of broad example so i take out if you were taking out twenty thousand pounds worth of cover the premium in a sense what we call the loading the increase would be far smaller than if you were taking out a hundred thousand pounds worth of cover because you've got like another 80 one thousand pounds worth of cover included within that um, policy it can get quite confusing. Um, that tends to happen where people have had more recent cancers and have been more of a higher staging and grading. The next one I wanted to talk about was an income protection policy. Now, we have been having, and I think across the industry, income protection has been something that people are really, really wanting to look at, especially with everything that's going on and the job uncertainties. So something I wanted to be clear on is that um, income protection isn't redundancy cover so some people have said you know they've maybe come to and said but i want to protect my income i want income protection just you know i'm worried about being made redundant and it's it's awful to have to say to people especially when this was happening being a coronavirus it's awful to say but that's not what income protection does so you can well i say you can you used to be able to get unemployment insurance um and that used to be a policy that was on offer and that would repay your um, income for 12 months if you were, well, up to 12 months, if you were made involuntarily redundant. All of those policies have been removed from the market now after coronavirus has hit. So the unemployment cover side of things is no longer open to new policies. So income protection itself, that is when you have a health condition um, develop that means that you are unable to work um, or something happens, you know, say, when you're unable to work due to your health. So an example for this one, so now this one, just bear with me because this one, the premium is a bit higher, but I'll explain why it's quite a bit higher, okay, when we get there. So this was a 54-year-old smoker. She'd had breast cancer carcinoma in situ 14 years prior to speaking with us. She'd had no lymph node involvement and it had been quite a large tumour so that in a sense, the core of the tumour had been about two centimetres, but with kind of the outreach that came from it, it totaled about 10 centimetres. She'd had a single mastectomy and that had been, and she'd had nine months off work at that time, but she'd been back at work, um, obviously not having any issues with the cancer for the last 10 years. She'd been told by multiple insurers and brokers that she could never have income protection. And she came and spoke to us and we had a couple of insurers that were possible. So what we did is we arranged for her to have £2,000 per month of income protection. Um, it was had what's known as a three-month deferred period so when you send set up income protection you tend to have rough with most of them you tend to have something like a four-week deferred period which means that you have to be ill for four weeks before a claim can be paid with this lady due to savings and different things a three-month period was absolutely fine for her and it does also mean that the premiums aren't as expensive it was known as what's own occupation and it was to age 65 because that was her retirement age now, this came to £135 per month for the cover. And the reason I want to say, just bear with me with the premium there a little bit, is that income protection is 
is definitely far more expensive than life insurance because people are far more likely to claim on income protection than they are a life insurance policy. So people sometimes they think it's going to probably be a similar pricing and then when they see the pricing for income protection, they get a little bit kind of like, ooh, I'm not sure about that. Um, it's just simply because you are so much more likely to claim on it. But the important thing that I want to point out for this one is that, you know, this is a 54-year-old lady, um, which means that she's in an insurance kind of way. She's probably more in like a prime age for maybe having a health condition that would cause her to be unable to work. I'm not saying that's for everybody, so please don't assume that I'm saying that for everybody who's 54, but you know, just from the statistics and everything. Um, but that £135 per month was guaranteed right up until for the next 11 years. And what I want to say is that there was no premium increase and there was no exclusion. That was the price that any 54-year-old smoker would have been given. Um, so that's why I just wanted to include that one. It is a Point, point you know good thing to point out as well because she was a smoker that pretty much meant that her premiums have been doubled anyway so if she'd been a non-smoker you could probably have those premiums um but yeah i just wanted to give those as some examples is there anything that you would like to add leo and um, anything potentially to those case studies or anything else that we've not yet covered i think it's just you know those, those case studies are fascinating and they're so helpful because for a start they illustrate you know how complex people's situations are so it's not i think that is the challenge sometimes it seems very kind of binary it's a yes or no and it's just not at all so i think you know for me as someone who's kind of lurking on the fringes of being more educated about insurance um i can see that but as people you know it's important to understand that people coming to the industry might just you know have quite a simple view of it so um but what's really positive and perhaps that's what we need to get the message out there more is the fact that it is accessible you know particularly that last case expensive but actually accessible if people want it and i think well you know i hear you talk about silly premiums versus sensible premiums i think that's quite an interesting point as well because actually again something i see a bit with the industry is this kind of tendency to shy away from offering things that they think people might not want or might not take. It's very much about what the customer circumstances are. So is it affordable for them? Do they want to have that choice to take it because that's more important to them and they feel like that's money that is well spent and good value. So I think there's, you know, there's that, which is sort of quite significant points is, you know, what does the customer really want? What are they prepared to accept and what is good value and fair for them? Um, and I think the other thing is, you know, obviously, I always feel very guilty that I talk very negatively about, you know, because I see so lots of injustice and lots of people who have very difficult conversations and difficult things. But actually, working on the access group has, you know, it's seeing that positive effort, seeing, you know, um, companies like yours, where you're really taking care of the customer, really absolutely trying to take it to the nth degree to make sure that they get some cover and get the best cover that's, that's available for their circumstances you know there's a huge amount of positive there's a huge amount of progress and I think it's important that we focus on that and I think some of the work that's coming out of the access working group you know the signposting work things that are really going to support people to, to get to what is available to them and you know some work that we're doing on explaining underwriting decisions which is something that we talked about before you know enabling people to navigate what is a complicated market but understand that the likelihood is there is something out there for them yeah. and also that if there isn't you know that that is explained to them in a way that's you know shows that it's fair and actually even better than that if as the part of the working group and part of this work is that we can actually extend the cover available to people you know that's the direction that we're going in or we were going in so apart from anything else let's not let covid stop that let's you know kind of hold that core of we were we're trying and working towards kind of widening access and trying to include people rather than looking to exclude them so i think you know positive and negative i don't want to be in the kind of complete naysayer or more <laughs> but 
sense um that's I guess that's where we're at no absolutely the thing is I think it's very valid and I think you know anybody listening will hear that you've got such passion for helping people that have obviously have been living living with cancer now or have had it in the past you know and I don't think anybody could I don't think anybody well I don't think anybody could have a negative to say about your points of view on it <laughs> um I'm not everybody though but you know I, I think you know like you said though it's kind of like that society thing is like what kind of society do we want to live in do we want to live in one that supports people and does as much as possible not saying makes necessarily the absolute you know perfect options and doesn't have the answer straight away but I think that thing of just at least trying you know as hard as possible to be as fair as possible and, and as you rightly say as well, making sure that, you know, insurers and, you know, anybody else in our industry make sure that we're not doing anything that goes against what the law says that we, we can't do. Um, so obviously, thank you so, so much for giving your insight. So we do have our truth or lie feature. Um, <laughs> which I have yet to fool anybody with. So I'm, I'm starting to take it as a personal challenge now that people <laughs> are just clearly very, very easy to read. Um, so I shall start it off and I will say that um, for my truth or lie, the weirdest thing that I have ever eaten is crocodile. Mm, interesting. So for my truth or lie, um, I have abseiled down the Spinnaker Tower, which if anyone's been to Portsmouth is the sort of pointy tower that looks a bit like a sail. That's really very, very high. Yes, I remember my sister went to university there, so I do remember. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, thank you everybody for listening and thank you, uh, Leo, for joining me. It's been absolutely great, obviously, to hear about your side of things. Um, you know, I'll be back in two weeks uh, with Sue Kinsella from Red Arc Nurses, where we're going to be chatting, obviously, about her experiences offering support to people. I imagine quite a lot of support potentially to people who have accessed Macmillan support as well. If you'd like um, a reminder of the next episode, please drop me a message on social media or visit the website www.practical-protection.co.uk and please don't forget if you are within the industry or even if you're someone else and you're not in our industry, if you would like a CPD certificate for having listened to this, just go on the website again and um, all the information is that they're easy for you to access. So thank you very much, Leo. Thanks so much, Catherine. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Bye.